0: With Kohl's on Instacart, there's no such we can't fix. Visit instacart.com to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. $10 minimum order. Additional terms apply.
1: This is a Partially Examined Life episode preview. You can purchase the full episode individually or support the podcast to get all of our episodes. Review your options at partiallyexaminedlife.com slash support. You're listening to The Partially Examined Life, a philosophy podcast by some folks who at one point set on doing philosophy, but then thought better of it. Our question for episode 61 is, what is truth? And we read on truth and lie in a non-moral sense from Friedrich Nietzsche, and what is the year?
0: 1873.
1: My
2: name is Mark Linton Meyer, speaking to you from Madison, Wisconsin. This is Seth Paskin in Austin, Texas. This is Wes Allwin in Boston, Massachusetts. Dylan Casey in Middleton, Wisconsin.
0: This is Jessica Berry in Atlanta, Georgia.
2: Welcome, Jessica.
0: Thank you. That's great to talk to you all. Welcome.
1: Yes, welcome. Thanks
0: very much for having me on, and congratulations on your success with this podcast. It looks like you guys have gotten quite a following.
1: Well, you said at least among your students at Georgia, several of them had heard of us.
0: I have heard from at least one non-philosopher who identity that uh, uh-huh. listens to Partially Examined Life, and a couple of students do. Some of our MA students, some undergraduates.
1: Well, nice. So, yes, you're at Georgia State University, right? We had a guest.
0: You had one of our graduate students on, Getty Lustela.
1: Yes, on our Hume slash Smith
0: episode. Yes. Right. Yeah, it was a good episode. Getty just last week defended his master's thesis. He's a master of arts in philosophy now, <laughs> and he's off to Boston University to take the next step in doing philosophy as a living.
3: Great. <laughs> wow. Congratulations to Getty. He hasn't
0: yet thought better of it. <laughs>
3: he'll get there we'll all
0: get
1: there in time (laughs) well some
0: of us don't get that far we get stuck
1: let's talk about why we're doing this particular essay so this is an unpublished essay from early on in his career he had done the birth of tragedy is kind of his famous aesthetics book and then this and he didn't publish it why did he not publish it was it not done you said jessica
0: Well, I mean, it's anybody's guess why he didn't publish it. Throughout his career, Nietzsche always scribbled things down. He kept lots of notebooks, wrote down ideas, copied passages from works he was reading. He took notes on other people. And he wrote sometimes slightly longer essays or drafts of things. And those things would occasionally find their way into published works later on, and occasionally not. I think the best assumption is probably that he just didn't deem it fit for publication. It never articulated what it was he wanted it to do, or he thought better of it.
1: <laughs> but nonetheless, this has been picked up on, particularly by postmodernists, people uh, yes. that have a very complicated and perhaps nonsensical view. No, all right. I won't, I won't start being provocative right off the bat view <laughs> of... Truth itself as being a primary inspiration because he says very radical things, not just like the pragmatists that truth can't be correspondence to the real world because we don't know anything about the real world. Truth has to be coherent or something like that. Those are contemporary Mm -hmm. theories that are lie. But this one is very radical sounding, right? It's that there is no
2: truth. It's all lies. Truths are illusions. I didn't get that
1: sense. Right.
0: Yeah, it's actually very difficult to say what this essay is about. I mean, it's not a real (laughs) essay. We have one section of an essay, which essay was actually intended to be part of a much larger work. So there's another unpublished essay from around the same time, and that's Philosophy in the Tragic Age of the Greeks. And these things were intended to be somehow stitched together in a much more ambitious project about the origins of philosophy, and where the philosophical impulse in human beings comes from in the first place. It's kind of an inquiry into origins. It's not that far removed from the genealogical method that Nietzsche would later develop, that he would become so well known for.
2: Right. And it seems related to his question in genealogy of morals about where these sorts of ascetic values come from, right? Because arguably, yeah. this drive to truth, you know, he's asking a question about the origin of the drive for truth,
0: Mm -hmm.
2: when our intellect is sort of designed to deceive us. So it it seems counterintuitive that we would ever develop this drive in the same way that it seems counterintuitive that we would ever develop other sorts of ascetic values. It's reminiscent of the later question in the genealogy of morals. I guess it's the extra-moral version of it. Right, right. Say what you mean by the extra-moral there.
0: In this particular essay, truth in the extra-moral sense, originally, Nietzsche suggests, just starts when human beings collect themselves together into societies, recognize that there are things they want and they got to get stuff done. And it's easier to do that with other people than alone. And out of this primordial almost situation, language somehow emerges as a tool for just getting stuff done. And this is just a page or two into the essay. What he calls the first laws of truth are just kind of conventions. They're agreements between people. We're going to use this sound or this phoneme to designate that kind of thing. And it just facilitates our practical advantages. We develop signals one another, things like, you know, poison, predator. (laughs) Those things turn out to be really handy. And when people misuse these fixed conventions, it just disrupts the system. That causes us inconvenience. And we come to dislike the misuse of these fixed conventions. But there's a sense in which people are speaking truly or correctly, designating things rightly, and a sense in which they're not. But that's an entirely pre-moral sense of truth and lying. So I think that's the extra moral sense here.
4: He says, man out of need and boredom wants to exist socially herd fashion, right. requires a peace pact, and he endeavors to banish at least the very crudest war of all against all from mm-hmm. his world. And this peace pact brings with it something that looks like the first step toward the attainment of this enigmatic urge for truth. We want to get along together. Right. So we're going to have this notion of truth by which we line up what other people say with what we say to each other mm-hmm. and making that kind of lining up. And also with our own experience and judgment of the world through our own perceptions. Mm-hmm. Which would be, seem to me like two kinds of correspondence. And it seems to be emphasized here that that correspondence is primarily one that's solely rooted in language. And I'm just wondering if I'm misinterpreting it or why that's the case.
2: It begins with the avoidance of harm and pain, right? Because untruth through, let's say, fraud or something like that can lead to harm. And that's essentially what we're initially trying to avoid Truth comes on the scene in this extra moral sense.
0: Right. So there's sort of a utilitarian beginning. The translation I'm looking at is Briziel's translation. What he says in the beginning is it's sort of a Hobbesian moment. There's a kind of contract. There's a peace treaty, he says, that brings in its wake something that it appears to be a first step toward explaining this puzzling truth drive. And that's Nietzsche's puzzle through this entire essay and i would argue through his entire career one thing that nietzsche cannot let go of is the question why on earth we have placed such an inestimably high value on truth when it's clear that it's not always good for us <laughs> yet we say it's what we always want so here if we just look back at the text this legislation of language he says establishes the first laws of truth then we have people who make mistakes right they misuse the conventions Maybe somebody cottons on the idea of intentionally misusing those fixed conventions. Maybe somebody decides to say something like, I am rich, and the proper designation for his condition would be poor. He misuses fixed conventions by means of arbitrary substitutions or even reversals of names. And if he does this in a selfish and harmful manner, society ceases to trust him and will exclude him. So when we look back at that, that's going to look to us like punishment. But we're looking at it very much through the lenses of our own highly moralized view of truth being valuable and lying being morally wrong. What Nietzsche wants to suggest is there's a time at which people doing this, it's inconvenient and can be positively harmful, right? Messing up a designation like poisonous or predator can be difficult. But he's what he says is even at this stage, what we hate is basically not deception itself. We don't have a moral conception of it yet but rather the unpleasant hated consequences of certain sorts of deception. And then it's two pages later or so, maybe three or four, where Nietzsche finally gets around to coming back to that question. Wait, we still don't know where the drive for truth comes from. So we have that kind of origin story about how it gets off the ground, but that doesn't shed any light on the mystery of how human beings came to value something that is not obviously good for them, namely truth.
2: And then as far as the question of language, because Dylan, I think you were asking about language, I think in that early account, because here he is giving that, that's his early sketch of the answer to why we have a truth drive. He's talking about social mores being designed to facilitate peace and prevent conflict, let's say, right? So language turns out to look like a subset of these customs and language... Looks like here to be something that's customary. When he gives this early sketch of the solution to why we have a truth drive, he's also giving us another reason for why it is that the intellect ends up being inherently deceptive, right? Because that's one of the things he does early on in the essay. He gives a litany of reasons as to why we would be confused about the truth drive. The intellect can't transcend specifically human interests. There's a pride in possession of the intellect. that is like a blinding fog over the eyes of men. Mm -hmm. And then this function of... Self-preservation, which is at the same time an explanation of the truth drive, or at least an an initial sketch of an explanation, Mm -hmm. but also leads us into dissimulation, flattering, lying, and so on, and all those sorts of things, which really play an important role in social life.
1: Right. Right. And he puts this right off as a means by which weaker, less robust individuals preserve themselves since they've been denied the chance to wage the battle for existence with horns or with sharp teeth of <laughs> great beasts of prey. <laughs> so, for instance, setting up a class structure itself, obviously there's a linguistic component, but there's more to it than linguistics. If you can puff yourself up and present an image of yourself in relation to your fellows as being of a superior class, say, than them, then that is a weapon right there that is enshrined in convention that's not entirely captured just by knowing their language, say. It's a custom.
0: Yeah.
2: Yeah. So this initial truth drive actually leads to the simulation because it leads to people's manipulation of it.
4: So what are we driving towards when we have a truth drive? That seems to be different than talking about what we mean by truth. So in this case, the drive for truth means what is truth in this particular case? What is it that we're driving towards? Because it sounds like, again, this notion of truth is radically social. So it becomes a convention, which would make it distinct from something like being correct,
0: Right, well, at least we think it does. I think when Nietzsche talks about the truth drive here, and later in his published works, the will to truth, what he's talking about is the simple fact that philosophers and scientists, as two chief representatives of this view, take themselves to be pursuing truth. It's the goal of all their activity, it's what their life work is oriented towards, and something they place value on. So it's actually a moral position, right? So there's the truth drive. We think we want truth, some sort of accurate picture, an accurate representation of reality, ideally an objective one. And then there's our actual situation, which doesn't seem to be conducive to getting that, and which in fact seems to be facilitated by a lot of deception and illusion.
4: Let me try to phrase my question a different way. Okay. You could say, I really aspire towards the beautiful. And you could talk about the question and the problem of why do I have this aspiration toward the beautiful? And you would also have the seems to me separate question of what do you mean by the beautiful mm-hmm. in that you aspire towards it? Those are two different things. Mm-hmm. And I'm asking us to sort out a little bit is when Nietzsche is talking about the drive to truth. Uh What is entailed in that term truth for him in this case? What is he saddling the philosophers and the scientists with doing? Because it seems to me that amongst them, they might have different criteria for what it means to Uh have truth, to identify it as true, even if they all have a drive to truth. They might have that all in common, but what they identify truth as might be very, very different.
0: Okay. I
1: guess I just don't see him doing an operational deconstruction of the term truth in terms of the methods of the various sciences to get at the truth. That he thinks that he's starting this with a fundamental thing that we think that we know what we're talking about, we think is basic. And one of the ways of approaching that is to say, yeah, well, you think you all have the urge for truth, but look, scientists and painters, you all have different methods of breaking this down. That would be one way to approach it. And he does end up eventually talking about the difference between, say, scientists and artists. But from the start, it seems like he's sort of talking about this as if this was something that we take right now to be a fundamental drive of man. You know, there's probably authors in particular that he's reacting to that were saying, we all want to know, and that's where all religion comes from and all this stuff. And he's trying to turn that around and give it a more... I would say, a Freudian twist. Of course, Freud was taking from Nietzsche, not the other way around. (laughs) But to say, no, there's got to be some other... Assuming that we are animals and we are the way we are because of evolution, why would we have this seemingly counterproductive drive? Because really, illusion, according to his analysis is beneficial to us socially. And it's one of the key strategies that we have developed to not only get ourselves to survive as individuals, but then to consequently structure the whole society. It holds society together, these shared fictions. So he's asking, why do these philosophers think that the drive to truth is a fundamental human drive when pretty obviously that shouldn't be the case? So he's trying to puzzle out the motivations.
2: Yeah, I think he accepts that the drive is fundamental. I don't think he's trying to say that philosophers claim it's fundamental and then he's challenging that, right? He's accepting that there's a drive to truth and then he's trying to figure out why when it's the case that the intellect is prone to deception. Then he gives this long account of concept formation, right? And a kind of obviously Kantian account of knowledge which says that the way knowledge works, we're bound to have access only to illusions and not truth with a capital t or we don't have access to things in themselves so i think part of the answer to dylan's question is what is he assuming to be entailed in the scientific or philosophical drive to truth he seems to think that what's entailed is a belief that we can have access to things in themselves
4: that makes a big difference it seems to me when you want to call truth an illusion right what you mean by truth there makes all the difference in the world how you understand, if it corresponds, what you see, your perceptions give you direct access or not, and what kind of qualifications you would make to that, and what you mean by concept. It may be that talking about the drive to truth, it utterly doesn't matter what you mean by truth.
0: Maybe there are two different questions here. So Dylan, you asked your question a minute ago, and then when Mark was talking about truth a minute ago, it struck me that I think you might be talking about a couple of different things. So let me go back to Mark and then I'll get back to Dylan. So Mark, when you said that you don't really see Nietzsche deconstructing the concept or giving us a real analysis of the concept of truth.
1: In operational terms, he's giving an analysis of the concept of truth, but he's not saying what you thought was a unified thing of seeking truth is actually going to be very different according to what job you have or something.
0: Well, I mean, I don't think he has any analysis of the concept of truth here at all, at least none that's original to him. One of the irritating things about the reception history of this essay has been that everybody thinks that Nietzsche's got a theory of truth and knowledge, and that he thinks truth is impossible and knowledge is unattainable for human beings, and that this essay shores up those views. And one of the reasons for thinking that that's not the case is that there is no definition of truth here, but there are a lot of provocative statements about truth. And one of them is that philosophers and scientists, Nietzsche suggests, take themselves to be pursuing truth. But he's skeptical about the value that they place on it. This essay actually is about the value of truth and knowledge, not about truth and knowledge. So then Dylan, it seems like what you were asking was, well, look, when he tells us that, you know, say, scientists or philosophers have a conception of themselves as pursuing truth, we've got to be able to cash out what he thinks they take themselves to be pursuing. What is the philosophical notion of truth that Nietzsche is so suspicious of the value of here, Right. Yeah. So personally, I think it's this. And it starts out from the point about language, but it doesn't rest there. Human beings have a mode of representation. The way we represent the world to ourselves is linguistically. That's how we construct our representations and convey them to other people. And he thinks it ought to be clear from the way language most probably originated that language is not an impersonal, disinterested phenomenon in human history. It arises as a tool. It's a convenience for us. We need to get certain things done. So the designations we assign to things reflect our interests and our needs and our preferences. Yet somehow, peculiarly, we've become attached to the idea that the most valuable thing we could possibly have is a representation of real reality, mind-independent reality, right? A representation that basically bears no traces of the people for whom it is a representation, right? A disinterested representation of reality. And that, if we have to put it in language, is just an incoherent notion. So I think the idea of truth that he is suggesting philosophers and scientists go after, and that is a contradictory impossibility for us, is objective truth, or the kind of truth that we often associate with objectivity or disinterestedness. That, that would yep. be the long, short answer <laughs> to your question. It's objectivity.
2: The section on language is kind of brief in comparison to the amount of time he spends on
0: it is. concept formation. It's very brief, but it's interestingly the most famous and most quoted part of this essay.
1: Let's read the quote.
0: All right. Well, we're either talking about something I have on page 84, that truths are illusions which we have forgotten are illusions, right? The passage from which that comes, I think, is probably yep. the most famous. What then is truth? Nietzsche says a movable host of metaphors, metonymies, and anthropomorphisms. In short, some of human relations, which have been poetically and rhetorically intensified, transferred, and embellished, and which, after long usage, seem to a people to be fixed, canonical, and binding. Truths are illusions which we've forgotten are illusions. They're metaphors that have become worn out and have been drained of sensuous force. coins, which have lost their embossing and are now considered as metal and no longer as coins.
2: And at that point, he's already into his talk about concepts. And when he uses the word metaphor, I don't think he's simply using it linguistically because he talks about the idea of a, let's say, an image or a sound being a metaphor for a nerve stimulus.
0: Right, but etymologically, a metaphor is a transference.
2: So metaphor sort of has two uses in this. One is in our typical linguistic sense, and then the other, he's using it in a kind of metaphorical sense when he talks about concepts.
3: So we're talking a lot about truth. I don't want to forget what Jessica mentioned early on, that he starts off the essay talking about knowledge. And there's a strong connection between the concept of knowledge and the concept of truth, as far as Nietzsche is concerned. And really, knowledge is what gives human beings a sense of self-importance. It's sort of the vehicle of egotism, or of our sense of our place in the natural world, if you will. And it's that maybe haughtiness that deceives us about what the value of actual living is. So Mark, when you mentioned the comment about we don't have horns and fangs, so we can't actually <laughs> do things. He's trying to make a point about how what we do do is we use our intellect to dissimulate and that essentially the activity of rationality is in itself a substitute for. It's intended to take the place of actually doing and being in the world in kind of an active, willful way. And so I feel like this discussion about truth and the idea of building up concepts is all built on that edifice of him trying to show that the way in which human beings use their rationality and use their intellect to create a representation of the world is really a substitute for something that. I imagine he would think would be more important, more primary, something like that. And that somehow undergirds this whole discussion. So exertion of power is the thing that it's I mean, that's the way he put it. We don't have clause, so we have to use this. Well, at the end of the essay he contrasts the life of the intellect versus an aesthetic life. And I felt like it was fairly clear in the early part of the essay that we substitute this idea of truth with a capital T as some sort of privileged access to things in themselves or to the real world, when in reality, what it is is kind of a social convention that's about trust. Truth is really about a social convention that allows you to say that somebody can be trusted or not trusted. And at least in that sense, already we've deceived ourselves about what the point of truth is in the beginning, because we believe we're accessing some sort of truth with a capital T or real things, real states, real objects, real entities. But also, it's the fact that it has this moral overtone that Jessica mentioned.
0: That way of reading it, though, commits Nietzsche to an awful lot of statements about what truth is. It really just is a social convention, or it really just is this or that, and he doesn't have any such notions. It's not his task here to give us a metaphysical or semantic analysis of truth or the truth concept.
4: Well, he's not analyzing, but he certainly has something he's carrying around with it, right?
0: I think what he's doing is he's putting his thumb on what we take truth to be and yes. the value we put on it, and he's criticizing that. He has no positive view to advance here.
3: Really? <laughs> so, I, so, I, so you're <laughs> saying he's wound up in a
4: bunch because everybody else,
0: <laughs> and that is he's clearly exactly wound exactly up yeah, in I a bunch. It, yes, he, Nietzsche was clearly, if anybody, was wound up in a bunch.
4: But everybody else thinks that truth is getting at the thing that is in itself. And that everybody else is just too blind to see that that's not what truth is. And furthermore, that's not what I think it is either. I'm not going to tell you what it is. Because I don't think it has anything to do with the thing in itself. He's not wringing his own hands. He's just wagging his finger.
0: I think he is wagging his finger. And I think he's wagging his finger only at a certain kind of pretension that he discovers in human beings. His job is to expose that but I don't think that he's not that sort of the Socrates that some of our students get the impression of, of, you know, the guy who's got all the answers, but he's playing his cards close to his chest just because he's a jerk. <laughs> he really has a view. He knows what piety is, but he's not going to tell anybody just because he's stingy or mean. I don't think Nietzsche's got that a view. A contentious
1: version of Socrates. Yeah, itself. exactly.
0: But but it's, it's one that many undergraduate students, the first time you throw the youth throw at them, and they see Socrates' In his style in the marketplace, they kind of think he's a jerk, because it seems like he knows something, but isn't being forthcoming. And that would be annoying. But I don't think that Nietzsche has that. He's not being forthcoming about it. What Nietzsche's after is exposing just the tremendous conceit, the sheer vanity of the human animal, and how incredibly self-impressed we are. We have this tremendous pride in our own intellectual faculties, And Nietzsche thinks a lot of this is really silly. And one of his philosophical tasks here and throughout his corpus is to remind us that we're animals, kind of vain little animals, but we're animals.
2: But if there's anything positive here, I think there's, again, in this long account of the way concepts falsify the world, right? There seems to be some sort of positive account of the kind of knowledge that we're capable of having. Right, he begins by talking about this primitive world of metaphor and the quote-unquote immediately perceived world. Mm-hmm. And then we get concepts that essentially falsify this world, and there's a number of different ways in which they do that. But one of them is, for instance, by making unequal things equal. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, there are no forms, there are no concepts, there are no species right. as metaphysical entities. Right. And when we subsume individuals... Under them, we, to some extent, falsify by ignoring their differences. And beyond that, concepts are simply constructed. He uses this word construction at some point.
0: Exactly. And that's why it's a falsification. Yeah. We falsify because we're constructing these cognitions. And we're doing that in cases where we take ourselves not to be constructing anything at all, where we take ourselves to be just discovering We think that our representations of reality are capable of sort of carving the world at its joints, that we're capable of getting an unmediated representation of reality, real reality. And Nietzsche knows enough, and he knows enough about science and the science of vision and perception in the 19th century to know that even perception, to say nothing of cognition, is an incredibly active process. We contribute a lot to that, but we take ourselves not to, and we have a moral stake in claiming that we don't contribute anything, we're capable of getting the pure, unvarnished truth, and that's what we're all after. And this is a really weird situation.
3: If I'm hearing what you're saying is that he's pointing out that what we think we have access to, we don't have access to. But in bringing up the social characteristics of truth as trust, mm-hmm. he's merely pointing out that that happens to be the way things are conventionally and not advancing that as a theory of truth?
2: It's not just convention, it's the way human cognition is structured, right?
3: If
1: you want to read Schopenhauer's and Kant's entire epistemology into him, yes. But the way he talks...
2: He talks of this X, which is an explicit mm-hmm. reference to Kant's critique of pure reason, this unknown X. I don't think it's reading into him, I think it's incredibly explicit. Read a
3: quote.
0: Right, no, it's not reading into him.
3: This is a short essay, we should read lots of quotes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Only through forgetfulness can man ever achieve the illusion of possessing a truth, in quotes, in the sense just designated. If he does not wish to be satisfied with truth in the form of a tautology that is with empty shells, then he will forever buy illusions for truths. And that's where he launches into the whole
0: mm-hmm.
3: nerve stimulus that gives us the concept discussion. What is
2: in the sense just designated? What is
3: the sense before that? That's the piece right before
2: He makes this kind of joke. You could see this as directed at Schopenhauer or Kant, but someone hides something behind a bush and looks for it again in the same place and finds it there as well. He's making a joke about this concept of objectivity, where basically the concepts according to which we make judgments about things are the same concepts that we actually construct these things with. So when we make a judgment, objectivity involves coming back to the object we've constructed with the same concepts we've constructed them with and finding them there essentially. It's sort of a weak conception of objectivity. Kant was perfectly satisfied with that, right? Kant wasn't lamenting in the way that Nietzsche seems to be doing here, although you can argue about that. But Nietzsche seems to be lamenting or at least accusing others of assuming that what's valuable is access to things in themselves, where under the theory of knowledge we're dealing with, we don't get access to things in themselves. We get access to appearances that we've essentially constructed.
3: Wes, I think it's even more fundamental than that. So you have this phoneme, if that's the right word, tree, and that We use this word, we call it a word, but it was really a sound before it became a written thing or maybe not. And it's just arbitrary. It's arbitrary that we call trees, trees and color, you know, snow, snow and so on and so forth. And it's the arbitrariness of our designations for things that is like hiding something behind a bush and going to find it.
2: I don't see that much follows from that arbitrariness of naming.
4: That kind of arbitrariness doesn't matter at all. What's going to matter is whether or not those words correspond in a way that you can translate from one thing to another. It's going to matter that there's a one-to-one relation. But the fact that you have any sort of arbitrary sign, that doesn't matter at all. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a really weak objection. If that's really the content of the objection, that we call it a tree or blue or red is arbitrary, that's really weak. I doubt that he means it that way.
1: And he's not hes not giving the more subtle... Potentially, Saussurean point that it's not just that we've chose tree or arbol; it's the fact that we could call this thing a tree, where that's the object, or we could call a clump of trees make that the basic object, tree, or we could call the tree plus the surrounding grounds. Like, do you consider the roots part of the tree? That kind of arbitrariness in the way we carve up in the world mm-hmm. in the first place. He doesn't even seem to be making that point no, actually, that I, I saw. Think that,
0: that is his point.
1: Yeah, the carving
0: up. Yeah, we've somehow forgotten, you know, as we were designating things that words reflect it. They're not, they're not completely arbitrary. Maybe it's a poor translation. Maybe contingent would be better. What we forget is that when we make these designations, they reflect our interests, right? And our yep. needs. They're not totally random. They're calculated, right. but they're calculated to reflect our interests. And so as Mark was just saying, if our interests happen to be in the part of the object that's above and below the ground, we're going to mean the tree and its roots. Or if our interests happen to be broader, we'll take in the whole forest or We designate things according to our interests, and then somewhere along the line, forget that these designations reflected our interests, and begin to think, what is suggested sometimes in Plato, that our categories carve the world at its joints, so to speak, such that our language reflects reality. And that's a pretense. That's the pretense that Nietzsche thinks we've forgotten is a pretense, and that he wants to expose.
1: Thanks for listening to this episode preview. You can purchase a full episode at our store page, get it by supporting us through Patreon, or become a Partially Examined Life citizen. We provide supporters with ad-free access to our full catalog, including new exclusive content. Configure our citizen feed to get it all beamed straight to your Apple or Android device. Learn more at partiallyexaminedlife.com support. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket?